So is peace possible? These days, the title of a sermon is supposed to be something catchy, meant to be on a marquee or web page to intrigue members and passers-by. And the title is supposed to hint at the truth. Is peace possible? Some funny sermon titles I've seen are Weight Watchers, spelled W-A-I-T, Weight Watchers, before Advent, Waiting for Christ's Birth. Or The Little Red Devil Behind the Pearly Gates, a sermon on the power of the tongue and honesty. Let's license parents. So how's the weather? Ants in the Pants of Faith is a title I've used to preach a sermon on doubt. So is peace possible? I'd give today's sermon title a C. It's pretty straightforward. No illusion, no pun, no cultural reference, nothing to let you know I'm hip. Despite its averageness, the question, is peace possible, is crucial. It's critical. And the title implies vision, hope, transformation, when the answer is yes, and when the answer is even maybe. But if the answer is no, Peace is not possible. There's no reason for this sermon, this Sunday gathering, and I'd go so far as to say there's no reason for this church. No is cynical, despairing, and deadening. Why bother? Is peace possible? I give a resounding yes. But wait, we're realists. And no doubt, sitting there, you've already come up with dozens of exceptions where peace seems utterly impossible, from warring family members to today's headlines. One thankless bureaucratic task is keeping data on the deadliest conflicts. So there are four ongoing wars wars that rate the appalling distinction of causing more than 10,000 deaths a year so that means these are going on beyond a year the Syrian civil war the Mexican drug war Iraq's insurgency and the ethnic violence in southern Sudan. This level of ongoing 10,000 deaths a year violence makes answering yes really difficult. As modern as we are, our world still turns on such brutality. So how can I say yes 
to the question at hand. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict or anger or killing. World peace, I know you've heard this, begins with the possibility of inner peace. And our yes has to include the potential in ourselves for peace. At the back of our hymnal is 602, and it's a familiar poetic prayer attributed to the mystic philosopher Lao Tzu. If there is peace to be in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. And if there is peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. So the notion that world peace begins with individuals can seem pretty tired and trite. How can attending to peace within my own heart have anything to do with horrors I read and hear about? I can feel so small and helpless against the endless wash of cruelty and violence. And yet, the most powerful tool we have is ourselves. It's all we have, and it's more than enough. Turning our attention to our feelings and actions are exactly where peace is born and nurtured. Peace in the heart takes recognizing our anger, transforming our judgments, and seeing possibilities beyond revenge. So try reconfiguring Lao Tzu's poem to explain the intimate personal root and spread of rage. If there is anger in the heart, there is anger in the home, between neighbors, cities, nations, and ultimately the world. It reminds me of the Russian Matryoshka, you know, the nesting dolls, with inner doll growing angrier and angrier as it gets bigger and bigger with each outer doll. I started watching on YouTube the supposed recruiting videos for ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or Iraq and the Levant because I wanted to locate the core nesting doll of personal anger in that movement's global rage. I wanted to better understand why are young American men drawn to this brutal terrorist group on the other side of the world? You know, citizens from at least 50 countries have joined more than 
100 Americans traveling to that region in Syria to fight. And so these ISIS videos tap into the boredom and the rage of disaffected young men. One video shows young men in brown military garb and turbans sitting on the dusty ground, all with rifles. And behind them is the black flag of ISIS. And that design, that black flag, is meant to evoke the illusion of an ancient Islamic caliphate. And a soldier sells anger and revenge with an idealized version of the afterlife to the viewer sitting on a couch somewhere with their computer propped in front of them watching YouTube. The soldier says, look around you while you sit in comfort and ask yourself, is this how you want to die? Know that you will be resurrected the way you live. You will be resurrected the way you live your life. And you do want to be resurrected with blood and dust in your lungs. ISIS is tailoring its hateful ideologies to appeal to a younger generation. They're cultivating a subculture that actually has been named by the media as jihad cool. Rap videos, romanticized notions of revolution and adventure with firsthand accounts of the fun of guerrilla war. Is peace possible here? I still say yes. If the human heart can be turned toward violence, it can be lured and coaxed to peace. Both take training. If a 29-year-old father from Minnesota can travel in a matter of months from work and shooting hoops in the Twin Cities to a boastful rifle-toting terrorist in Syria, then this transformation can happen in reverse. But neither change is easy. A useful reading here, a useful roadmap, is an ancient story. It's a Buddhist parable about a terrorist. And in this ancient story, it follows this fearsome outcast who is terrorizing cities and villages. He ransacks them to gain control. And as he murders people, he adds their fingers to a gruesome necklace. And he boasts of these conquests, taking on the name Angulimala, which means necklace of fingers. One day he comes face to face with the Buddha. And the killer is stunned by the Buddha's willingness to listen 
to his story. Angulimala is born into a low and much despised caste and has turned his misery into murderous rage. Angulimala's anger is rooted in the experience of rejection from his father and transformed by the Buddha's teaching that compassion, not vengeance, is the way to battle injustice, even injustice in your past. So Angulimala becomes a monk, and he changes his name to Ahimsaka. Actually, the others change his name, which means the nonviolent one. But the story doesn't end there. Now, the king and the victims and the victim's loved ones have to decide whether to execute this former terrorist for his crimes or recognize that he's repented and become a force for good. Is peace possible? When I first read the story, I was struck by all the pivotal moments in the story that arise from conversations. As a reader, I was immersed in the hearts and minds of each character, whether it's the nervous voice of the village woman, the coarse words of Angulimala, the refined speech of the king, or the compassionate teachings of the Buddha. They each consider the possible results of their thoughts and their words and their actions while speaking to others. So what is this alchemy that can take place in a heart turning anger into peace, revenge into compassion? The, com the chemistry is skillful listening and speaking. The chemistry turns simply on words and being in relationship with others. The man who pioneered a way to do this, there are many ways to do this. It's a common spiritual teaching, but there's a man who developed nonviolent communication. I bet some of you have heard of that, NVC. Dr. Marshall Rosenberg says, we can learn how to speak and listen like the Buddha. Rosenberg considers anger a great gift. It has an important role to play in our life. We do not need to suppress or avoid our rage, but work with it skillfully. Yes, peace is possible. Now, if this sounds naive, Rosenberg has street cred, to say the least. He's taught nonviolent communication all over the world, from churches like ours to prisons to schools to war-torn and economically disadvantaged countries. The system of listening and speaking taps into how good it feels to authentically connect to another human being. So NVC begins by assuming that humans are all compassionate by nature. 
We are born with peace in our hearts. And this perspective is the same stance as our universalist heritage. If we are naturally compassionate, then violent strategies, verbal or physical, are behaviors that we've learned. We've learned from unexamined family habits or the prevailing culture. Next, nonviolent communication assumes we all share the same basic human needs. And so our actions and our words are efforts to meet one or more of those needs. And this outlook is like, again, like a lot of spiritual teachings, but especially Buddhist teachings that say, we all want to be happy, but frequently continue to take misguided steps to get there. I first heard about NVC years ago at our Unitarian Universalist family summer camp, Swoosie. Rebecca just talked about her experience there this summer. And the teacher there used the principles of NVC as his daily spiritual practice. That blew my mind. I'd never thought about it. Huh. Make my daily practice how my speech and listening He was working to be disciplined in how he listened and how he spoke. And he's not alone. There are Tulsans in practice groups using NVC principles in their daily lives. And we could host an NVC group here at Hope, giving concrete tools for living out our covenant, our promise to dwell together in peace. Without walking through all the steps in the whole NVC system today, I just want to look at that part where Rosenberg talks about anger. As I've already said, he teaches that anger is a gift, one not to be dismissed. I don't know about you, but anger, I'd rather do anything than be angry. And he says anger is our alarm. It's a bell calling us to pay very close attention to our thoughts. Anger is a messenger. The feelings announce we're thinking in ways that won't get our needs met. Anger alerts us to the likelihood that our interactions and our conversations won't be constructive. In fact, they're more than likely to be destructive. Rosenberg says, any kind of killing, blaming, punishing, or hurting other people is a very superficial expression of anger. We want something much more powerful than killing or hurting people physically or mentally. That's too weak. Too weak? Isn't killing the ultimate act of power an irreversible force, a permanent action? And Rosenberg calls it too weak because it doesn't fully express our anger. When we think we need to hurt others, what we really need is others to see how hurt we are 
to see how their behavior contributes to our pain. Blaming or punishing the other person is not constructive, and it's not sustainable. Okay, this is stating the obvious, but continuing to kill your enemy is not sustainable, ultimately. Vengeance is a distorted cry for empathy. So when I watch the ISIS terrorist resorting to the promise of an imaginary, fulfilling afterlife, the distorted cry for empathy becomes very clearly visible underneath that bravado. In Angulimala, his terrorizing, it's really a tantrum writ large. The necklace of fingers may produce fear, but it's not real power. It is, it is weak, ultimately ineffective, an attempt to cover up a consuming rejection. And while I haven't killed anyone, I can think back to moments I've been blinded by my own anger. Never, and I don't use that superlative often, but never has acting out of my anger by yelling or writing a nasty letter or email or stomping off or hanging up the phone, that has never produced lasting results that I want. Momentarily, I feel powerful and great and justified, but ultimately, the rage alienates. And when, when I'm calm and honest, I see how I want to be understood, I want to be heard, and taken seriously. I want compassion. I want a human connection. I want a bridge. Anger makes us ineffective, and peace is about being effective. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk who quipped pieces in every step, writes in his book, Being Peace, about his frustration of how much anger he notices within the peace movements. You know, he's responsible for protesting the Viet Vietnamese war within Vietnam. And he says, the peace movement can write very good protest letters but they're not yet able to write a love letter. We need to learn to write a letter to the Congress or to the President of the United States that they will want to read and not just throw away. Peace that's effective. So yes, peace is possible when we pay attention, when we pay close attention to our anger. It's our bell. It's our clue to what we really want and need. And then finally, when we can speak and write our needs like a real love letter, peace is possible. May it be so.
We give away our plate. 